we're going we're gonna to start by reading a short portion of a long text today, and we're going to work our way through the text as we go. Uh, we're going to start with Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. And the word of the Lord says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen that everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this is also but a striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. The word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Uh, You can all be seated. I want to take a moment to remind you all today that uh, as we're going to be working our way through the book of Ecclesiastes over this summer, and we have back in the back, back in the Eberhardt window back there, uh, uh, some Ecclesiastes scripture journals. And if you would like one, it's a gift from our church to you, uh, for you to take, to use to take notes, or, or for your personal devotion and study time. If you want one, if you, if you want one, if you'll just raise your hand, uh, Ricky will grab you one and, and bring to you if you'd like to have one. Um, or you can grab one uh, on your own as you please. So last week we started in the book of Ecclesiastes and we gave some historical background on the writer of Ecclesiastes, King Solomon. And we know that Solomon is the writer because in Ecclesiastes 1.1, he calls himself the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And then also in Ecclesiastes 12.9, the text says that the writer was wise and studied and arranged many proverbs. Solomon was well known for his wisdom, and he also wrote the book of Proverbs. So in this book, Solomon refers to himself several times as the preacher. And the Hebrew word there means a collector. Solomon collects his thoughts on life and he shares them with an audience, someone who gathers people together and delivers a message. I do it on Sunday mornings through the pulpit. Solomon did it through his writing. Uh, This book, in a way, can read like a random collection of thoughts. But as we walk through it together, you'll see that it's all cohesive and it all fits together. And it leads us to one big overarching idea. And that idea is this. Don't just think in the now because the now will be gone soon. Focus on forever. That's what really matters. Remember God in everything you do. Enjoy life and enjoy God. I'm going to say that one more time. Don't just think in the now, because the now will be gone soon. Focus on forever. That's what really matters. Remember God in everything you do. Enjoy life and enjoy God. Now, we talked last week about how there are three big phrases that Solomon uses over and over 
in this book. The first one is actually a word that he uses, the word vanity. Solomon uses the word vanity 38 times in this short book. And a lot of commentaries translate this word as meaningless. But that's a little inaccurate if you look at the original language. The Hebrew word for vanity actually means breath or a breeze. So when Solomon writes that all is vanity, he doesn't mean that life doesn't have any meaning. He's saying life is like a puff of wind. It's like a breath or a bit of smoke. Solomon isn't saying that life doesn't have any meaning. He's saying life is short. Life is short. And the second phrase we'll see several times in Ecclesiastes is this, under the sun. 29 times Solomon uses these words. And he's talking, when he says under the sun, he's talking about the time we have here on earth. Our walking, talking, going to work, going to the lake, going to the kids' ball games, going to church, going to funerals, going to eat Mexican food lives. Uh, The things we all do in this life under the sun before we die. And then the third phrase he uses a lot is, I said in my heart. Solomon has a pattern in this book where he discusses different things that he tried to bring him satisfaction and joy in life. But he finds in the end is that only God truly satisfies. He tries to find meaning in women and wine and money and power and knowledge and any type of experience he could reach. But it was all just vanity. It was all just a breath. And he uses, I said in my heart, as sort of this connecting phrase a lot in the book of Ecclesiastes. I tried this, it didn't work, so I said in my heart, God was the more important and more satisfying and the greater treasure than what I've just talked about trying. Solomon talks about all the things he tries to make his life meaningful. But the end conclusion to his book is this. When he starts the last chapter, chapter 12, he begins it with these words. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. Don't wait until you're old and about to die and you've wasted most of your life to think about God. And in the last verses of chapter 12, he wrote, The end of the matter, after all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So that's the big theme of Ecclesiastes. Remember God. Remember God. Throughout the book, there are smaller themes that add up to that big idea, though. So there's a smaller theme for today's text. And here's the theme for today's text. True joy comes not from our striving, but from God's giving. True joy comes not from our striving, but from God's giving. I wanted to ask you something today. It's something to think about. What is the one thing, the one thing that would make you happy? Would having a billion dollars make you happy? What if you had all the success in the world and you were a famous business leader like Elon Musk or, or you had the talent of some famous singer or if you had the good looks of Brad Pitt or some Kardashian? 
that, that's Solomon, all rolled up into one, okay? He had enormous wealth and power and prestige, and he was intelligent, and he had 700 wives and 300 concubines to go along with them. He, he was an incredibly gifted and talented individual who accomplished everything a man could ever want to accomplish. But it all left him feeling empty. So in the beginning of today's text, he starts breaking down the things that he's tried to fill the void inside himself. And he starts, it's very ironic that we have three young people here today who are about to start college because what Solomon begins talking about one of the things that is vanity in chasing after the wind is the pursuit of knowledge and education. Now, I'm not bashing going to college or education, but I want you to listen and listen to what Solomon's saying here, okay? He says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun. And behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. And what is lacking cannot be counted. So Solomon gives us his resume again. He's the preacher, the king over Israel and Jerusalem. He has access to anything in the world that he wants. So he starts his search for satisfaction by gaining knowledge. Learning everything he can possibly learn about art and the physical world around him and science and mathematics and philosophy and architecture. He wanted all the answers to all the questions. But what he found was that having the answers just led to more questions. He called his search an unhappy business. In some translations of the Bible, it says his search for knowledge was a grievous task, a terrible chore that didn't bring him the pleasure he thought it would. Even as he studied the deepest secrets of knowledge, he found that they were vanity, just a breath, just a wisp of smoke that fades away. The things that were crooked in his head, he couldn't straighten out, no matter how much he studied. When he said, what is lacking cannot be counted, he's saying he learned a lot. But there were gaps in information that couldn't be filled in, no matter how hard he tried. He just couldn't know everything. And then he goes on to verse 16, and he says, I said in my heart, there's that phrase, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Solomon's point in verse 16 is that he can be the smartest person to ever walk the face of the earth, but it won't bring him lasting satisfaction. He tried to experience everything there was to experience in the world, everything a wise man would do and everything a fool might do. 
He said, my heart has had great experience of wisdom and folly. Finding satisfaction in any earthly thing is, according to Solomon, like trying to grab hold of the wind. When I bought my first house, it was an older place that no one had lived in for several years. And it was a fixer-upper. And I knew that I could buy this house and I could make it into my dream home because I had seen it done a lot on HGTV, right? You, you can renovate an entire house in 30 minutes to an hour and then it'll be perfect. And, and, but what I found was the more I tore this place apart and tried to build it back, the more I discovered how little I knew about home renovation. Uh, in all honesty, there were things in that house that I fixed that I spent way more money paying somebody else to fix correctly. Uh, this is the frustration that Solomon is feeling. The more he learned, the more he understood that he still had a lot left to learn. Uh, so Solomon shifts gears. And instead of trying to find satisfaction in gaining knowledge, in chapter 2, he begins talking about pursuing satisfaction by chasing after pleasure. This is where most of us live, okay? He says in chapter 2, starting in verse 1, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad and a pleasure. What use is it? I searched my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. He goes on and he says, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which water the, from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desires, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So there's six kinds of pleasure that Solomon talks about in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. First, he talks about humor. He said in verse 2, I said of laughter, it is mad and a pleasure. What use is it? Solomon tried everything he could to have a good time. Anything to make him laugh and feel something good inside. But what he found was that all those things were vanity. They were all like the wind. They don't laugh. Uh, one, one thing I love about the congregation of this church is that there are a lot of you who understand that I love to laugh. And I'm probably not the typical pastor in a lot of ways. 
because I have a little bit of a twisted sense of humor. I, and uh, I, I love toilet humor, frankly. And uh, when I first started here at Carlton Baptist, I realized that Casey Cooper was a kindred spirit when it came to the, the toilet humor, okay? And so I had been here just a few months probably, and I, I sent him a text message of a video that was probably, uh, probably not another pastor in the world would ever send anybody, but it didn't have bad language. It was funny. It was toilet humor. And I texted it to him with a message. I said, don't show this to your mama. Because I didn't know Denise that well, and I didn't want her to think I had the sense of humor of a seventh grade boy. So I was sitting in my living room just giggling to myself about how Casey was probably reacting to this video. And then I got a text from Denise that said, don't show this to your mama, huh? <laughs> like, I told Casey not to show it to her. And the first thing he did was immediately show it to her. And that was a moment for that was hilarious for a second, and then it was horrifying to me. Uh, even the deepest pleasure we experience... Even funny moments that we remember, they're temporary. They're vanity. The second type of pleasure that Solomon talks about in this passage is alcohol. He says in verse 3, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart was still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. Now, Solomon isn't saying that he started partying and getting hammered drunk, okay? He says, my heart was still guiding me with wisdom. He was too smart to think that getting drunk for pleasure was going to have any positive outcome. But here's what he was doing. He was trying fine wines. He wanted to find the best wine in the world. He was sipping on mom juice so he could taste and relax and enjoy his downtime. And again, he says, it was vanity. It was foolishness. Not even the best, most expensive wine could ever bring him a truly lasting satisfaction. And then the third type of pleasure Solomon talks about is projects. In verses 4 through 6, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. Solomon had an idea that he could be truly happy if he created his own version of the Garden of Eden. So he built buildings and planted vineyards and he grew gardens and he built a temple, a place of worship. Uh, this, this temple took 153,000 workers Seven years to build. And then he turns around and he builds his own house. And he takes the same 153,000 workers that built the temple to build his house. And it takes 13 years to build. There's no dream home that I can imagine on this kind of scale. I, I really would just like to screen in my barbecue pit and for my septic tank to stop leaking. Uh, I talked to Nick about that earlier. Solomon, though, is, is chasing after pleasure by surrounding himself with the most beautiful gardens and beautiful home with beautiful things inside. And it's vanity. It doesn't give him lasting satisfaction. The fourth kind of pleasure 
Solomon talks about. He talks about possessions. He says in verse 7, I bought male and female slaves and have slaves who were born in my house. I had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. Solomon bought slaves, and when they had children, he kept their children as slaves. He amassed huge flocks of sheep and herds of cattle, more than anyone in Israel had ever had before. He enjoyed silver and gold and extravagant gifts from kings around the world. I've read that Solomon had at least one ship sailing into his port every day filled with gold from other kings around the world. In 2 Chronicles 1.15, it says that silver and gold were just as common as stones in the street in Jerusalem when Solomon was king. I've said in here in this church dozens of times that having money is not a sin, but it is never going to satisfy you. Having possessions is not a sin, but they are never going to satisfy you. If your goal is to have a million dollars in the bank, then once you get to a million, you're going to want two million. You'll never be comfortable. You'll never be content. You'll never be satisfied. Next, the next kind of pleasure Solomon tried was music. He said in Ecclesiastes 2.8, I got singers, both men and women. Solomon didn't need Spotify. He didn't need iTunes. He had live musicians available to him whenever he wanted to hear music. He didn't have to put a quarter in a jukebox or look for a song on his phone. He just had to snap his fingers and his musicians would play any song that he wanted to hear. But it was vanity. And the pleasure from it didn't last. And then Solomon says he tried physical pleasure. It says, I got many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. Solomon had 700 wives, 300 concubines, 1,000 women available to him any time of day or night. He's saying this is what any man would want. This is the delight of the sons of man. And surely this ought to make him happy. But it didn't. Solomon said, I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. And my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Some translations say here, there was no profit under the sun. No lasting satisfaction that could come from all of these temporary pleasures. You can learn more, earn more, spend more, drink more, sin more. You can have all the sex you want, get all the degrees you want, smoke all the dope you want, experience everything under the sun, but none of these things will bring you lasting satisfaction. 
So Solomon begins to draw some conclusions. He says in verse 212, he says, So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly. And there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to them all. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will also happen to me. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this is also his vanity. Vanity. For of, the, uh, for of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance. Seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and striving after the wind. There's two principles to consider here. The first Wise men and fools meet the same end. It's good to be wise. It's good to have knowledge. But all of it is vanity. It's all like a breath. Death comes to every man. The wise man and the fool. The rich man and the poor man. The righteous man and the evil man. Death doesn't make any distinctions. Everybody who has a birth announcement is also going to have an obituary someday. Wise men and fools meet the same end. And then the second principle that we can gain from this is both wise men and fools will be forgotten. We talked about this some last week. And we talked about how we we have... I have fond memories of growing up in church, but my memories only extend a couple of generations back before me. I've heard stories about people from generations before that. And this is a church with a lot of rich, rich history, right? Our church is 222 years old. There's a lot of rich history here. But we talked about uh, how, uh, how we, a lot of us know this church started in 1800, but then I asked the question, who was the first pastor? Does anybody remember what I said his name was last week? Good job. Wow, good job. Who said that first? I, I, who said that? I couldn't remember. Uh, Annette said it, uh, uh, and Ray said it. They, y'all, uh, Casey's going to give you guys 20 bucks a piece. Uh, so, uh, so, William Davis, very prominent pastor in the area. He started this church in Clouds Creek, Elberton First Baptist, and he started Sarepta, our Baptist organization for the area, in 1813. And so he was very prominent. He was very prominent. But none of us remembered him. None of us. He was a wise man. But none of us remembered him. Uh, We talked about Jacob Everhart back here in the back window. And who knew who Jacob Everhart was? We, We didn't know who he was. But he was prominent in that. But I, I can tell you, he was a state senator. He was a very prominent farmer um, uh, and, and a really significant person in the history of the church. But none of us really knew who he was. But he was significant enough to have his, 
picture uh, in the window. Uh, somebody told me once he looked like he was on Duck Dynasty, uh, and that's what made him significant to them. He was a really prominent guy. But people get forgotten, even the most prominent. When we die, there'll be a funeral, and there might be five people there, and there might be 500 there. And they'll stand around, and they'll talk, and they might joke a little after, and then they'll go on with their lives. And then their kids will give all their favorite things to Goodwill, and they'll take some stuff for themselves that their parents or grandparents had worked so hard for. And in about three generations or so, their names will barely be spoken anymore. Even the most famous of famous people. Not many people have that enduring remembrance that Solomon is talking about here. Solomon's conclusion to all of this, because he's not leaving behind a great legacy, he's not going to be remembered, he thinks. He's going to die. His conclusion in verse 17 was, So I hated life. I hated life. But that's not the end of the story. Solomon didn't say, I hate life. He said, I hated life when I thought about all these things. By the time we reach the end of this book, Solomon is going to tell us that he's figured out what brings lasting satisfaction and joy, and he doesn't hate life anymore. He said in verses 24 and 26, there's nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat and who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he is given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Solomon is telling us that focusing on earthly things are like bubbles that we put ourselves in in hope of getting some lasting good feeling. The problem with bubbles, though, is that they always burst. They're like a breath. Vanity. The ultimate human problem is that death comes to all of us. But the preacher even bursts death's bubble. Instead of making those gifts from God his ultimate goal, he recognizes the giver. David Gibson wrote, Endless enjoyment does not come in the box with your iPhone. If it did, why have you been thinking about an upgrade? Enjoyment is not automatically part of life. It is not on the key ring to your dream house. It doesn't ride with you on the passenger seat in your new car. We all know what it is like to have tasted the best life has to offer and still to be left wondering what comes next. Joy cannot come from our striving, but from God's giving. All the happiness in life we will ever need can be found in seeing ourselves as we truly are, dependent creatures made for relationship with our Creator. I read a post on someone's social media a while back, and it says, I'm claiming 2022 as the year. And I thought, the year for what? 
the year to find the perfect mate or to buy that dream home or gain that dream amount of money. Uh, Ultimately, what I think she meant was, this is the year I'll finally be satisfied. You know what that is? Solomon said it. Vanity. Chasing after the wind. If 2022 is perfect for that young lady, she'll want 2023 to be better. It's chasing the wind. But there is something better out there for you. If you just open your eyes and open your hearts. There's a scene in Luke 10 where there are two sisters, Mary and Martha, and they have Jesus as a visitor in their home. And Martha is busy, busy, busy with the things of life. But Mary sits at the feet of Jesus sits and listens and enjoys the company of God. Jesus said that Mary chose the good portion and that no one could take it from her. There's a lasting satisfaction that comes from knowing Jesus that outlasts and outweighs anything else you will ever experience. So here's what Solomon is doing for us. He's reorienting us to what really matters. And if something in the text today or if something in the message today, just like last week, if it left you feeling empty, then he has accomplished exactly what he set out to accomplish. Because empty cups have space to be filled. He wants us to be filled with the most important thing. Our lives are full of a lot of things. But the preacher is reminding us of one thing that outweighs them all. David wrote about it in Psalm Psalm, uh, 84 that we read earlier. One thing I have asked of the Lord, and that I will seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in His temple. David cared very little for the gifts God had to give him, but he cared immensely for the giver. He wants to be near God. He wants to know God, to enjoy God, and to be in a relationship with God. So for David and ultimately for Solomon, the thing that will make you happy is not a what, but it's a who. It's God Himself. Psalm 73, 25 and 26. David wrote, Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So there's a place in your heart that only God Himself can occupy and satisfy. Knowing Jesus is the most important thing, the one thing, the good portion. 1 John 4.19 says, We love because He first loved us. 
We love God because God gave us the gift of Christ on the cross. We love God because He gave us a gift that won't fade away. Forgiveness of our sins and redemption from our depravity. And He makes us into something brand new and draws us into an unending relationship with Him. Knowing Jesus and loving Him matters more than anything else you will ever experience. I'm telling every one of you that today. Knowing Jesus matters more than anything else you will ever experience, your children will ever experience, your grandchildren will ever experience, more than anything else. Other things are important. There's no doubt about it. But your deepest longing, whether you know it or not, is for Jesus. Your children's deepest longing, whether you know it or not, is for Jesus. Your grandchildren's deepest longing, whether they know it or not, is for Jesus. And you know what? We are completely blind to that. Completely blind. Because at a ball field in Tekoa today, there's about 800 parents and 400 kids. At a gym in Gwinnett County, there's another few hundred kids and another few hundred parents. In a boat on a lake, There's more parents and more kids. And am I telling you, you should never have fun with your kids again or never let them do anything pleasurable again? No. But knowing Jesus and loving Him matters more than anything else in our lives. God gives us Himself. Himself. This this book, it's, it's not just advice. It's not just ten steps to being a good moral person. It tells you how to be in right relationship with God from start to finish, from Genesis to Revelation. Every line is about being in right relationship with God. He gives you Himself. Some of you know what it's like to be a grieving widow. And some of you one day will. And God will become the husband to the grieving widow. Some of you know what it's like to long for children and not have them. And God becomes the comforter to those. Some of you didn't have ideal parents. 
And God becomes a father to you. Some people long for love and a great marriage and a family and they don't have it. And Jesus becomes the bridegroom to that person. Some of you are sick and God becomes your healer. Some of you have experienced depression and confusion in life and He becomes a wonderful counselor. God loves you. And He responds to the emptiness in your heart by giving you His heart. Remember your Creator in the days of your youth. At the end of the matter, when all has been heard, this is what's important. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. True joy comes not from our striving, but from God's giving. And the best gift that God offers us is himself. The best gift that God has to give you is Jesus. Let's, uh, let's stand to our feet. And I'll tell you what, Daniel, we're, we're just going to pray a minute, if that's okay with you, if that's all right with you. God, I thank you for every person here. And I pray that they all might know you. That they all might know that you are the God that brings a satisfaction and a joy and a love that won't let them go. I pray that they would know that Jesus is God in the flesh and that He died on the cross to pay the price for everything that separates us from God, to pay the price for our sins so that we might know God and experience eternal satisfaction and eternal joy, that we might enjoy life and we might not fear God's judgment, but we might enjoy God. Help us to know you, Jesus. Help us to value you as the treasure you are. Amen. Uh, somebody's going to be mad at me, I know. You know, Stephen Lawson said the problem with preachers today is that nobody wants to kill them anymore. But I love you guys. I do. And I know you know that when I preach, I'm preaching to myself. So let's receive the benediction this morning. May Christ dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God, now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. 
And all God's people said, Amen. Y'all have a fantastic Sunday.